Last week, we looked at John chapter 3, which is about Nicodemus. This week, we look at John chapter 4, the woman, the Samaritan woman at the well. Now, if you look at chapter 3 and chapter 4, Nicodemus versus the woman at the well, they are mirror opposites of each other. Nicodemus was a man. He was a Jew. He is a respected member of society, and he came to Jesus at night. The Samaritan woman was a woman, a Samaritan, a low member in society, who Jesus came to at the very height of the day. Exactly mere opposites of each other, intentionally so. If you were to write a newspaper article based on this chapter, chapter 4, the headline might read, Messiah gladly gives purifying water to impure woman. And the subhead might read this. It might say, woman tells city he knew everything I had done. Let's pray. Merciful Father, you offered purifying water to an impure woman as a testimony of your grace. We ask in our baptisms, you, we too would drink of this living water so that it would erode barriers between us, purify us of our sin, be a source of revelation of your Son, and dwell up within us to eternal life. Amen. For many of you who um, read John chapter 4 as you were listening to it, um, if you keep in mind the Old Testament, John chapter 4 begins like many love stories begin in the Old Testament. I didn't know if you realized that when you're reading through this. This is sort of like a, a love romance novel in chapter 4. Um, what I mean is this. The way a lot of marriages occur in the Old Testament is that there's a man traveling in a foreign land. And the man comes to a well. And there, a woman comes to the man and offers him water. And then, as they interchange words, the woman then goes back to her family. They set up some betrothal, betrothal agreement. And then, there's a big marriage that happens. That's what happened with, with, with uh, Jacob and Rachel. And in many ways, you might be expecting that if you didn't know anything about Jesus and you only had the first couple verses of John chapter 4, you might think, hey, a marriage is going to happen. Well, now we know a marriage doesn't happen, but Jesus is after this woman's heart. Now, what's important, though, isn't the similarities between Jesus and, let's say, Jacob. What's important are the differences, the differences between this woman, Samaritan woman, and Rachel, who went before the first difference that you might find is that unlike the maidens in the Old Testament, the Samaritan woman has been married five times and is living with a sixth man. Now, the text doesn't tell us whether she was divorced or widowed. I know a lot of people will say, oh, she was divorced five times. We don't know that. It doesn't say that. It doesn't know if uh, she's had five spouses who died and now she's living with the sixth. It doesn't say any of that. But what we do know is this. This is a young woman. And for some reason, she's on man number six. Yeah. I mean, and so at, at, at best, this would be a tragic woman. Her life is a tragic story. At worst, it's sinful. Now, you might not know this, but this woman's personal history reflects the history of the people of Samaria. What you don't know is that the Samaritans were not just simply descendants of Jacob. The Samaritans had... And a mixed ancestry. When the Assyrians back in, in, in 
BC, or 722 BC, when they brought, they, they conquered Samaria, they brought five different people groups into that land. Let me read to you from 2 Kings 17.24. 2 Kings 17.24, it says, The king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Kutha, Ava, Hamath, and Sepharvaim, and settled them in the towns of Samaria to replace the Israelites. Okay, so the Samaritans had had five different peoples move into their own land. So that's the five husbands. But then it goes a little further. During Herod the Great's time, he brought a lot of people from Rome. And if you're going to settle these Rome unclean people, where are you going to settle them? Are you going to settle them in Jerusalem? No. You're going to go just a few miles away. You're going to go to that unclean place, Samaria. And that's where thousands of people were settled. Now, the Samaritans of that day weren't, uh, weren't uh, they didn't intermarry as much as before. And so when Jesus says, and this is really important, when Jesus says to the Samaritan woman, you've had five husbands and the one you are living with is not your husband, he's not only referring to her history, but she's referring to the history of the Samaritan people as well. Now, I want to stop for a second. How do you think this made the Israelites view the Samaritans? Any guesses? Right? Not good. That's right. These were half-breeds. These were people who were viewed as, as unclean. These were the dogs of society. They viewed the Samaritans as, as awful people. And you think about the modern-day rift between Israel and Palestine. You might get a sense of this rift between Israel and the Samaritans. In fact, in Jesus' day, actually A.D. 66, there was a ruling by a Jewish council. And the Jewish council's ruling was that Samaritan women from the cradle were unclean, ritually unclean. And as a result then, any person who touched a Samaritan woman would also be unclean. And so Jewish people would never actually want to touch, touch a Samaritan. Okay, so that's how the Israelites saw these Samaritans. Now, how do you think these Israelites would have seen this woman from Samaria? Even worse, right? If the Samaritans are dirty, she's the lowest of the bunch. She's the dirtiest of the dirty. She's the lowest of the lowest. If Nicodemus in the chapter 4 was the highest in society, this woman was the lowest. You don't get lower than this woman. <laughs> it would have been easy for Jesus to pass her by. Many have said he should have passed her by. Might ruin his ministry, might pollute his ministry. But he didn't. Instead, Jesus asked her for a drink. Why? Because Jesus wants her heart. Luke 5 tells us, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have, come to call the, I have not come to call the righteous, but to call sinners. So this leads then, that's the first wrinkle. This is a lowly sinner woman. But there's a second wrinkle in this story, 
And the second wrinkle is that when Jesus actually asks this woman for water, the woman doesn't understand the request. That's why Jesus said in verse 10, he said, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. In other words, he's saying, you don't even understand who I am and what I'm offering you. Now, the question I've thought about, and Tim brought it up when he was reading this, is what kind of tone did Jesus have when he asked these words? Was the tone sort of scolding to the woman? You know, you do not know what you asked for. You don't know who's in front of you. Was that the tone? Was the tone more of just, you just don't know? You just don't get it? What was the tone that Jesus had when he asked these words? Any guesses? Loving, somber. In fact, what he's asking is he wants, he's speaking to her in a way so that she would actually want to ask him for living water. It's probably an inviting tone. You know, you, and parents, I have a daughter now, so I understand this, right? The way you can sort of say, now, Abigail, don't, don't grab that water and drink it, sweetie. She grabs and drinks it, right? I mean, it, it's that, that kind of tone where, where he, he, he's inviting. He, he knows what he's doing, but he's trying to get her to ask him for a drink of living water. And that's why he says again, listen again to 10. If you knew the gift of God and who it is, that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And you can almost begin to say the woman's going, I'm going to ask him, who is this guy, and and what's this living water? I'm going to ask him for it. And what's so wonderful in this this passage is this interplay between Jesus and the woman. And, And it begins in this interaction, it begins with her not knowing who he is, and it ends with him, with her knowing that he's the Messiah. And so in verse 9, It says, when the first time she's speaking to Jesus, she says, you are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. So at first, all he sees of her, or all she sees of him, is that he's a Jew. Now the next time, in verse 12, she's learning a little bit more through this interaction, and she goes, are you greater than our father Jacob? So first, first all I saw you as a Jew. Now I'm considering, are you greater than Jacob? And then through their conversation, down in verse 19, she goes on to say, Sir, I can see that you're a prophet. Okay, so this conversation, Jew, are you greater than our father Jacob? I think you're a prophet. And then verse 25, the woman says, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. And so as this conversation's going on, proceeding, goes from a Jew to, are you greater than Jacob, to, I think you're a prophet. Could you possibly be the Christ? Through this wonderful conversation, Jesus is is leading her to faith. And I love his response. In verse 26, then Jesus declared, I am, I who speak to you am he. Now in the Greek, literally, it's I who speak to you, I am. You know all those I am statements, ego a me, it's, it's, it's the name of God. And so to this woman who begins to look at him and say, are you a Jew? Wait, you're a Jew. Are you greater than Jacob? Are you, sir, I perceive you're a prophet. Could you possibly be the Messiah? And then to that response, Jesus finally, who's elicited this, he's invited this response. He wants her to believe, finally then says, the one who's speaking to you, 
I am. And I imagine he must have said, Ego, Amy. <laughs> you know, I mean, let her know, I'm the one. I'm Messiah. What you're hoping for is standing right in front of you. I love what happens. The, the, this is the best story in the world. I mean, I mean, the scripture is so wonderful. Because then in verse 30 or 28, it says, when the disciples came back, then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, you know, come, this man knew everything I had done. Do you notice what she left? What did she leave? The water jar. Why didn't she need the water jar anymore? Because she had tasted the living water. She had drank from the Messiah. She had understood who Christ was. She didn't need that water anymore. I mean, she, sure, she would need it, but, but that's not the point. I mean, I mean, I mean this is how, how it works. I mean, I mean, she doesn't, this is a symbol, this is a sign to show us that she has drinking deeply from the well that is Jesus. And she didn't need the jar anymore. Later in John chapter 7, Jesus says this. John chapter 7 says, On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. The woman didn't need the jar anymore. She had drank from the well that is Messiah. And the Holy Spirit had, had led her to faith. Now, what does this passage mean for us 2,000 years later? It means this. To the woman, Jesus said, and to us, Jesus says, ask and I will give you living water. To the crowd at the feast, Jesus said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. The point is, is that the God of the universe wants you to ask him for living water. He wants you to drink of him. He wants you to trust him. He wants you to believe in him. The God who created everything wants your heart. He wants to unite him, unite you to himself. He wants you to say, please let me have that living water. Let me drink of that living water. That's what God wants for you on this day and every day. But it's at this very point where the sinner in us objects. We object because we might doubt ourselves. And we say things such as, but I'm too dirty. I'm a no one in society. I have messed up many, way too many relationships. Jesus' reply to those objections are, I know everything about you. I know all that you've done and left undone. Ask, and I will give you living water. Now, for others, they, they don't doubt themselves, but they might doubt Jesus' promises. How can water do this? How can bringing an infant to the waters of baptism do this? How can it accomplish anything, Jesus? To this, Jesus replies, I tell you the truth. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he's born of water and the Spirit. Ask, ask, and I will give you the living water. 
But Jesus, we say, but still, we're way too sinful. And Jesus replies, bless you. But that's not what he says. He might actually say that. (laughs) Bless you. The water will purify you and wash you. So ask, and that will give you living water. But I don't know enough, we say. And Jesus says, I do. And the Spirit I send to you will teach you and lead you into all truth. Ask, and I will give you living water. But we object some more. How can I be sure of this? How can I really believe this? And at this point, Jesus makes his greatest claim. He says to you and says to your doubt, he says, look at my side. Look at where I was pierced. As that spear pierced me on the cross, as I thirst for you, as the spear pierced me, what came from my side? Blood and water. The blood is a sign of my death. The water, a sign of your life. Do you doubt the water can do this? Do you doubt my love for you? Do you doubt the promises I make? Look at my side, Jesus says. Look at the living water that flowed from my side for you. Look and let that be your assurance. Don't look at yourself. Don't look at your circumstances. Don't look at at your emotions or how well you've done of things. Look at Jesus' side, flowing of blood and water. And let that be what you hold on to. Hold on to his promises and ask for living water. As that hymn reminds us, you were broken that I might be healed. You were cast off that I might draw near. You were thirsty that I might come drink. You cried out in anguish that I might sink, sing. To you this morning, Jesus says, ask, ask, and I will give you living water. Now, there's one final word I want to share, and it's a mission word. It's an evangelism word. It's a word that, that it's the final Sunday of the month. We, we talk about our missionaries. We should talk about them every Sunday, but at least on the final Sunday of the month, we should definitely talk about our missionaries and about evangelism. Remember at the beginning of the sermon, I said, if the subhead... Of, our, of, the, of the newspaper article might read, woman tells city he knew everything I had done. Well, I think there's a different subhead that could have been written. It goes like this, and it's based on the chapter. Disciples went to town and brought Jesus lunch. The woman went to town and brought Jesus the town. Right? She goes into town, She shares to them all that he had done. Jesus, he knows everything about me. And the whole town goes back, and they meet this Jesus. And at the very end, the town says, verse 42 of John, truly this man is the Savior of the world. The town got it. Reformation, oh, Reformation. In this passage, Jesus promised that the fields are ripe for harvest. Let us go out. Let us share the gospel so that the subhead of the the newspaper might read this. Reformation goes into the city of Westminster and Fountain Valley and Huntington Beach. 
and the city drinks of living water. Let us pray. Holy and gracious Father, you say ask, and you will give us living water. And so that's what we're doing at this moment. Lord, we're asking. We're asking to drink deeply of Christ, to drink deeply of the living water, to drink deeply of the gospel, to be found secure in, in the waters of baptism, to hold on to, the, to Jesus' side and watch blood and water flow. Lord, let us drink of the living water. Let us be washed by the living water. Oh, Lord, we're asking for the living water. We're asking this individually. We're asking it for our our congregation. We're asking it for the Lutheran Church in America. We're asking it for all Christians. Lord, we're asking for the whole world. The whole world might drink of this living water. In Jesus' name, amen.